Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're quite excited today. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, we owe our guest one today, Alina. We have Zach White with us, Napoleonic historian, who has respectfully sat through all of the insanity and the shenanigans of our sharp reunion podcast um interjecting in on the lunacy with some historical fact when he can so it's about time he got his own podcast to talk about his stuff so of course he's going to do peninsula war with us but in particular we're going to look at crime and punishment which sounds really juicy how are you zach i'm i'm good thanks very much for caring how are you both yeah we're all right we've kind of had enough of lockdown now Great understatement. Brilliant. Well, just tee us up before we start talking about the crime and punishment with explaining to laymen what the Peninsula War is and how Britain got involved and where. Yeah, this is probably quite a good starting point because for a lot of the public, and this was certainly true for me, um, people tend to come into contact with this period through the Sharps novels, which which is great, um, but doesn't necessarily help you to pick up the context. The the Peninsula War is a smaller element of the Napoleonic Wars, which really start in the 1790s with um, war with the French Revolutionary Government um, and then continue after Napoleon took control. Um, and the Peninsula War itself lasted between 1808 and 1814. Its origins go back to 1807, when Napoleon was at the height of his power um, and he tried to effectively suffocate his last remaining enemy, which was Britain, through a continental blockade, effectively depriving the country of trade in order to force it to agree to his peace terms. And part of that required Portugal to adhere to it, because the only way this was going to work as a system was if the entire continent effectively shut its borders to British commerce. But Portugal couldn't really afford to do that because they were exporting huge amounts of wine to Britain. Even back then, we drank loads. Um, and their refusal led to Napoleon saying, well, look, here's an ultimatum. You either do what I say or I'm going to invade you. The Portuguese still refused, and so um, Portugal was invaded. But then in the process of doing that, um, particularly over the course of 1808, as more and more troops get sent across Spain in order to invade Portugal from the south of France, um, Napoleon started to look at how weak the Spanish monarchy was and effectively decided to stab Spain, which was his ally, in the back. Uh, unsurprisingly, the Spanish objected to him trying to forcibly remove the Spanish monarch um, and set up his own kind of puppet regime in Spain. And so there was a, an uprising in Madrid, which is known as the Dos de Mayo Uprising, uh, which was captured particularly vividly by a guy called Francisco Goya um, in a sequence of paintings. Um, and although the uprising was crushed and there were executions of some of those involved on the following day, which again was captured by Goya, there was a chain reaction across the country, um, as some, not all, uh, but significant numbers of people within the country rose up against these occupying French forces. And Spain, turned around to Britain, their former enemy, a sort of marriage of convenience ended up forming. 
um, with the Spanish initially asking for money, arms and ammunition. Um, but the British also decided to divert an army under Arthur Wellesley, the future Duke of Wellington, which had been destined for Venezuela, actually, a Spanish colony. And that landed in Portugal at Mondego Bay in August 1808. It was a small force by the scale of armies at the time, so only about 14,000 men. By the end of the month, they'd beaten France twice at Relisa and Vermeiro, and effectively liberated Portugal before Wellington was, well, Wellesley as he was then, was superseded. And over the next six years, the war ebbed and flowed across the Iberian Peninsula, which is why we call it the Peninsula War. Um, in January 1809, Wellesley's successor, uh, John Moore, was forced to pull a massive chunk of the army out of the, the, the region altogether at Corinna. Portugal was then reinvaded by Wellesley, who was sent out again in April 1809. He liberated Portugal in six weeks. And then a stalemate sort of developed, um, particularly in the wake of the Battle of Talavera in July 1809, which is where he gets his, he's promoted, he's given his um, lordship to become Wellington. Because the issue ultimately that creates that stalemate is that there are so many French troops um, in the region. In, and yes, a lot of those are tied down by the Spanish guerrillas, the, the insurgent forces who um, some are kind of uh, motivated by patriotism, Others are just bandits, but the fact that you've got these bands of people across the country who rise up against the Span against the the French means that the French send a lot of troops into the region. It's estimated that somewhere in the region of a quarter of a million French soldiers are are tied up trying to firstly subdue Spain itself, but also force out the the British, which they can never ultimately do. In 1812, there's a bit of a breakthrough. Uh, partly because Wellington received gradual reinforcements, and at Salamanca he manages to uh, secure a comprehensive defeat over one of the French forces. That's followed up in 1813 at Vittorio, uh, when the French are forced out of uh, Spain altogether, and the Anglo-Portuguese-Spanish army, which Wellington commanded at that point, was the first force into uh, France in, in late 1813, invading in, in the south. And the war is important for a few reasons. Firstly, it creates this unbroken string of victories over the French, with the exception of a a siege at Burgos in 1812. And that galvanised the whole continent because it created this sense that actually the French could be defeated. And that was something that wasn't necessarily apparent because Napoleon had had this long sequence of often stunning victories over the, the various coalitions that had formed against him. And so the fact that Britain had been able to secure the sequence of victories out in Spain and Portugal sent a message that it could be done, and that that helped to kind of boost the the morale of of the continent as a whole. It also, as I mentioned, drew a quarter of a million French troops into the conflict, which could have been put to better use by Napoleon elsewhere if he hadn't been trying to subdue Spain and Portugal. But it also allowed Britain to hold its head high, not just because... Prior to this point, Britain's main role in the conflict against Napoleon had just been bankrolling other armies. But the fact that Britain had been able to take the fight themselves to Napoleon meant that they had that extra bit of clout when it came to negotiating, um, trying to bring other countries into the conflict. And it helped to build the reputation of the British army, because before that point, it hadn't been particularly great. But the fact that they'd been able to defeat what was considered to be the best country at the time in the form of the French army meant that actually people started to rate the British force in a way that they hadn't before this point. 
Um, let's talk a bit more about what the British Army was comprised of. So where did the British Army recruit from? Um, what was the makeup of the units in the Peninsula War and what was life like for them? Yeah, the, one of the big contradictions between about the success of the British Army over the French is that this isn't a, a conscript force that, that Britain recruits, but it's also a, a French army, which is comprised of conscripts. But it's also, the British Army is quite old-fashioned in its methods. It's, what, it's an ancien regime army. It's split by class. So you've got the officers who are often aristocrats and gentry, and they gain their position, and Wellington's an example of this, by buying their ranks. So you physically pay for initially your, your enzyme ship, and then you pay more and more for each, each rank that follows. And then beyond that, it's promotion based on competency. But it's completely different to the French system, which is based on promotion because you've done a good job. And there's, a, there's an irony in the fact that this old-fashioned, outdated, um, pretty backward force in terms of thinking about who's best equipped to lead is able to defeat a much more egalitarian, much more forward-thinking French army. When it comes to the rank and file of the British army, Wellington famously uh, called them the scum of the earth, which is one of his sort of classic exaggerations. Um, And it said that many enlisted for drink. There's, There's something in that. Some men did come from prisons because there was an option that rather than face your punishment, you could be dropped straight into the army. But many actually enlisted because they were starving. So when you look at the former professions of these recruits, they're quite often labourers who have enlisted because they need a meal and because they need regular pay. And with fluctuations in the British economy over the period, the the spikes in recruitment often come at the times when there are economic hardships. Um, And everyday life is is quite dull, um, as it is for most soldiers now. Battles, the exception rather than the rule. Those battles were fought at incredibly close quarters. The common weapon, the musket, had a range of 80, well, effective killing range of 80 yards. The rifle for Sharps fans was much further. It was 300 yards. But even so, you could see the enemy close up. And at times, not unusually, there was hand-to-hand fighting. So it ended up being quite vicious when, when it did come to a fight. If you were wounded, well, good luck was basically the message from your surgeons because infection was a massive, massive problem. If you broke a limb, amputation, anaesthetic, was your most effective option. Um, and even then, because hygiene levels were so poor, the chances of you surviving that were... PTSD was obviously an issue, but it wasn't recognised at the time. And you have a number of trials of individuals, and you can see in the court proceedings that what they're suffering from is post-traumatic stress disorder, but because there was no concept of that at the time, what they end up being tried for is is things like um, cowardice. Day-to-day, their biggest problem was a lack of food, and it's it's another irony of the system. These people often enlist because the army is meant to guarantee their pay and guarantee them a meal a day, but the army was often months in arrears out in the Iberian Peninsula, And that meant that troops couldn't buy food. But nutritionally, even the food that they were meant to get, they didn't get that, was woefully inadequate for the tasks they had to do. A chap called Ed Coss, in a book, All Food and Shilling, did a really detailed study of nutritionally, what was the calorie intake and how did that compare to their calorie burn? 
And effectively, they were starving themselves in terms of what they had to do, particularly because of those massive issues. And, and Wellington would rage about the fact that people weren't able to get the supplies as fast as they were needed. But the fact that they were starving meant that they had to plunder, because it was plunder or die. You had to do something in order to be able to eat. But if you got caught, the punishment for that was potentially execution. And so it created this vicious cycle for them where they had to try and navigate this really ambiguous, really dangerous line between how do you get hold of food in order to be able to actually not die, but at the same time not get caught in the process in order to be able to eat and, and not be executed for committing a crime. The other issue that they have is, is disease, because at any one point in the conflict, up to a, a third of Wellington's force was in hospital. Um, so it's, it's a pretty horrendous life for the soldier. I'm really keen to know, before we start to talk about your research, Mm -hmm. um, tell us, how have people generally understood crime and punishment to work in this period in the army? It's seen as pretty severe. Um, It's probably worth me outlining kind of some of the slightly geeky um, constructs of of how the system worked. So initially, in the period that I'm looking at, there are two levels of court. And then from 1812, there's a third level. At the top, you've got the general court-martial which is meant to do deal with the really serious stuff. Things, things like murder, mutiny, desertion, that hands out the most serious punishment. So it's the general court-martial that can sentence you to execution or transportation overseas. At the bottom, you've got the regimental courts-martial, which, as the name suggests, is dealt internally within the regiment. And that's for the much more minor stuff, things like drunkenness, dirtiness. Um, and, and they hand out much more minor punishments. But then from 1812, you have the creation of something called the General Regimental Court-Martial, which is the name implies, is meant to sit in the gap between the two. It's kind of intermediate here. Um, the main punishment at, at this point is flogging. The General Court-Martial, the top tier, can sentence someone to 1,500 lashes, 1,500 lashes, which will kill you. It'll turn your back into uh, just a... a I'm guessing mess. you'll be dead halfway there. Well, less than halfway there. Isn't a dozen considered quite harsh? This, there's an interesting debate between people who've looked at um, crime and punishment in the Navy and the handful of people who kind of think about army punishment. And the naval historians like to suggest that actually being flogged for 12 lash- lashes in the Navy is really severe because you're being flogged by the bosun. And mm-hmm. they turn around and say, ah, oh, yes, but in the army, the flogging is done by drummer boys. And so therefore the lash hurts less. But uh, actually, that's a misconception because a chap called Erin O'Keefe, who specialises in things like military music, has started to look at the actual age of drummer boys. And what he's found is that actually these guys are teenagers, sometimes like the late teens, 18, 19, 20 even. And so that that disparity doesn't actually exist in the way that it's sort of. Um, in terms of whether it would kill you when you were halfway there, well, what's in, really interesting is that the 1500 lash punishment isn't actually ever handed out. There are a couple of times where it's sentenced, but then it's not inflicted. They change it to something um, less vicious. What they do hand out is 1,200 lash punishments, which is absolutely horrendous. Um, If you passed out partway through, though, which for obvious reasons you would do because of the pain, because of the blood loss, what would potentially happen is that you'd be taken down because you're tied up to this tripod and they they flog you. Um, You'd be taken to a hospital allowed to recover, and then you could potentially, weeks later, be tied back up and receive the remainder of your punishment. So even if you passed out, it wasn't necessarily a get-out clause. 
Um, and it was widespread. I mean, I've looked at nearly nine and a half thousand cases that cover the period 1808 to 1818. I've put together the sort of database of, of who's tried when for what crimes and the punishments they get. Um, and the army issues two million lashes over the 11 years that I've looked at. And when you consider that alongside Wellington's pretty uncompromising... That is insane. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's a huge number. Um, and when you consider that that's divided down across just 9,500 cases, less than that even, and, and my database doesn't cover everything that we're trying to do by a long way, there's probably 11,000 cases that I haven't even factored in yet. The numbers are, it just blows the mind. Um, and when you put that alongside these really uncompromising orders that Wellington issued at times, I'm wondering had happened, where he basically rants about how this behaviour cannot be tolerated and he won't stop until he finds the, con- the culprits and that they will face the full force of the law. And he reminds them that if, um, if a group of, of plunderers are found, there's always one who ends up grasping on the other and he will exploit that in order to make sure that he has the evidence in order to be able to try them fully. All of which he has to do, it's worth bearing in mind. The reason he makes those threats is because he has to keep the local population on side. He has to um, tread a very fine line between diplomacy and the reality of what he's, he's dealing with out in Spain and Portugal because the Spanish are his allies and he can't have his men plundering because that's what the French are doing. The French are stripping the country there and there are brutal reprisals by the Spanish through the, the guerrillas, the insurgent forces that um, end up attacking and waging this really vicious war against French supply chains in isolated bands of French units. And Wellington knew that he couldn't afford to have that happen with his force. If he did, the war was over. There was no way that he could fight the French in Spain whilst also dealing with the Spanish. Um, and when you put all of that all together, that Wellington's um, evident and, and genuine fury, he was genuinely furious about these incidents. Um, when you add that to the scale of the punishments, the size of them, the number of lashes that are handed out, from one perspective, it looks, for pretty obvious reasons, to be a totally vicious, inflexible and intolerant system. And a guy called Roger Norman Buckley describes it as a system that was based on terror and torture as public spectacle. You don't agree with how people have interpreted, do you? Do you no. So you, are you saying that you don't agree that it's arbitrary and cruel? Yeah, I, I have a, a quite a different take on it. I mean, okay. there's no getting away from the fact that Buckley is right when he says that the the focus was on deterrence rather than reform. But the reality I find is that the, the, the things are more complex than that. There's a lot going on in the background that has been overlooked because no one studied it in depth. I mean, a couple of people have done articles here and there. But this is the first time that the system's really been sort of picked apart and scrutinised. And through this database that I mentioned, um, which doesn't cover every um, punishment that was inflicted by any means. um, And as I said, there's no getting away from the figures that I mentioned. What does become quite clear is that different sections of the army have really massively different priorities. And they respond to this system and exploit it and manipulate it in really different ways. So at the top, you've got the king, the commander in chief and even Parliament, which try and push this humanitarian agenda. The king, early on in this period, is, is he has to confirm every um, court martial, general court-martial 
that um, is is completed. And they get laid before him, and he looks at one that has a sentence of 1,500 lashes, and he turns around and issues a directive that says that, in his opinion, a 1,000 lashes is quite enough to ever be inflicted. But that doesn't change the law. Um, and what you find is that, actually, that's ignored um, on, on multiple occasions because it's not a direct order from the king, and it doesn't change the fact that there is a system of law, that this is all built around. Um, in 1812, the commander-in-chief does a similar kind of thing, but he issues an explicit order when it comes to regimental courts martial, that Boston tier of courts, to say that the maximum uh, number of lashes that can be inflicted needs to come down. It was 500, and he insists that it will now be 300, which does something to um, ease the extent of floggings, but the fact is that the army still flogs a hell of a lot, and 300 lashes is still horrific, and it's issued plenty of times. And then you've got the Mutiny Act, which is the, the legal basis for this. The courts martial are only able to operate because there is a legal framework that empowers them to, to have the jurisdiction that they have, because you can't just arbitrarily punish people and, and tie them up and flog them. And that, that act is debated every single year in Parliament. It goes back to the fact that during the English Civil War, you, you have massive issues with a standing army. And so Parliament was always very, very concerned about there the being a, a large established force that wasn't scrutinised annually. So the Mutiny Act is debated every single year. Um, and when you read those debates in Hansard, what becomes quite clear is that there are factions within Parliament that are trying to abolish flogging altogether. And that's a reflection of society, because thinking within the civilian legal system was changing in terms of how people thought about crime and punishment. You've got a transition from people being obsessed with punishing the body through flogging, through capital punishment, to punishing the mind by putting people in prison, transporting them overseas. And there are elements of Parliament that want to push that agenda and make it apply to the army, although they never actually achieve that. So that's what's happening at the top. Then you get what I call a middle tier, which is the commanders on the ground, people like Wellington, who need to make a quick example of people in order to maintain discipline and then be able to move on. And they're, for pretty obvious reasons, less interested in this idea that actually, perhaps you should lock people up rather than flog them. Because if you lock somebody up, you've got to waste them guarding them. Those individuals can't be used in the front line. The army needs to move on mentally. It needs to take an example of people, but it also needs to move on geographically. And you're, if you're leaving hundreds of people behind the lines because they're locked up in prison and you've got people who are guarding the prisoners, it creates a massive headache and reduces the size of the force that he can bring to bear against the French. So what you see is that not only is the king ignored, but when that middle tier that I mentioned, the general regimental courts martial is brought in, it's not brought in to make general courts martials be tried in a less severe way. It's actually just used to punish loads more men. And you see huge numbers of people going through the general regimental courts martial from the second it's introduced. But you have a, another layer within, within the army kind of social circle, which is the regiment. And at the regiment, it's a massively different story because officers on the ground in the regiment have another balancing act that they need to um, implement, which is a balance between the morale of the troops and then maintaining discipline. And what you therefore find is that the officers within the regiments end up pardoning punishments they pass certain crimes off as 
um, lesser crimes, so for example, things like desertion, will just be described as absent because that's a less serious crime which can be dealt with in a smaller tier of court and has a less serious punishment attached to it. And more than that, they end up turning a blind eye to a huge number of crimes, particularly when it comes to plunder for food. So I've taken to calling this whole system a pragmatic system of discretionary justice, which is basically a case of flog when you really have to, but when you don't, just don't punish at all. How did you get onto this topic? It's it, it goes back. It's been a long time in in the in the pipeline. It goes back to my thesis, which I was doing oh back in 2014. I was looking at morale. I wasn't actually that focused on on crime and punishment. I was looking at court martials to try and see if they showed anything about morale, which basically they didn't. Um, and what I when I, I got to a particular point in the records, I was on the siege of Badahoff in April 1812. And for the people who perhaps aren't familiar with what happened there, it was um, a, a really unpleasant siege. The city was stormed in early April of 1812, and it, it was a, a vicious assault. There were estimates of about 4,000. British troops killed and trying to take the place in a really confined area, most of them dying in, in the breaches. Um, and in the 48 hours that followed that, army officers completely lost control of them. They literally ran riot, plundering, setting fire to houses, but also in a number of cases, murdering and raping some of the inhabitants. And so obviously this was a major incident. And I expected, pretty logically, to see loads of trials. And it's what you expect, right? You use total control of the men. You need to punish them to bring them back in line and say, you're not going to do that again. But the reality is that there weren't any. They just weren't there. Men quite simply got away with it. And as you can imagine, it's one of those moments when I sat back in the archive, and we all had these, and your head just starts to explode slightly. And you think, what the hell's happening here? And so I tried to work out what was actually happening. If something like that didn't get punished, what was getting punished and why weren't they punishing for, for things like what happened? And so here I am years later, finishing off, off a PhD on it. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You've talked about officers using some discretion. Are they in on any of this bad behavior? I mean, if the the army has constant problems with money and that it's not only the men that are going to suffer is it yeah i mean this is really interesting because it contradicts our assumptions about these honorable gentlemen officers because like i said at the start this is uh, an army that is split in terms of class and the officer class is mostly staffed by gentlemen um 
And it ends up being really controversial, not least because, I mean, this is a town that's occupied by the French, but it belonged to Spain, who was Britain's ally. And when it comes to Badajoz, some did try to stop it. It's worth saying that a lot. There's a lot of talk among historians about whether this was just kind of expected. And so officers looked at what's happening. And went, oh, it's men being men. They've had to assault this city. It's to be expected. It's all accounted for in, in the rules and honours of war. But I, I have a few problems with that interpretation, partly because this notion of sacking cities is kind of a, a 16th century concept. It's quite outdated by this point. In the 18th century, fortresses usually surrendered when a breach, a hole in the fortress wall had been had, had been knocked out. Um, and that was part of this whole kind of age of enlightenment and not wanting to waste lives in, in needless slaughter by storming uh, a city. And if you didn't surrender after a breach had been made in, in the outer wall, then it was the garrison rather than civilians that should be executed when the fortress was captured. Now, Napoleon was a stop because he ordered his commanders not to surrender fortresses without fending off at least one attack. And so it created this unique situation of um, an allies town being occupied by the enemy. And, and so I, I don't really buy into what people have said there. But with with some of the officers, it's quite clear that they thought, you know what, it's just best not to get involved. Um, some who do try and get involved end up being killed by the men for it. And you get, um, there are some accounts of officers who are trying to sort of hold their men back from uh, plundering. And there's one guy who recalls how uh, one of these soldiers just turns around, brings his musket up and tries to shoot him in the face. And because the, the musket wasn't loaded, he survived. Um, and he ends up decking the, the man in question who apologises and runs away. Um, but for others, there were certainly it's some who thought... insane. <laughs> no, it, it, was, it was nuts. And there are plenty of officers who must have been bayoneted by their men. Um, for, for others, there were certainly some who thought that reward was necessary, partly because the assault was so vicious. Um, and in fact, they nearly didn't take the tower. It was that bad. Um, but some actually lined their pockets. And I think this is what has really slipped under the radar. There is a culture amongst some of the officers of just taking things, whether it's from um, plundered towns like Badahoff, or it's just little things that they see lying around. And they think, oh, yeah, that'll look nice back home. I'll take that with me. Um, and you get these accounts in the wake of Badahoff where people have gone behind the lines and they're trying to sell off things like gold cups and, and other stuff that they've plundered, or they send it straight back home to their friends and there are some really interesting letters where those back home are saying well what are you doing sending me this stolen stuff why do i want these stolen plays or this stolen collection of books or whatever and and they don't understand the the different kind of set of principles that has taken root amongst the officer corps so it's it's not necessarily that they don't know how to handle it it's more that they either think that it's not the time and the place or they're just busy gathering what they can and, and profiting from the situation. This is just something I had never even considered. So we had a good laugh and a joke with Sean Bean, didn't we, about mm. looting because there were some scenes in Sharp um, and about Sean Bean's own looting off the set, um, <laughs> which he, he did say he got permission for everything that he took, but he's basically he got half the set. Um, but you mentioned people being punished in other ways. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, this is where the pragmatism and the discretion really gets interesting. Um, because with, with Sean and Jason, I mean, hopefully people have listened to the podcast, but if they haven't, go and listen to it. Um, I mentioned something in, in that episode about company courts martials, 
which are quite shady because they don't actually have a legal basis. There's no legal provision with them because military law is meant to be dictated by the Mutiny Act. And there's nothing about these in the Mutiny Act. Um, and so they're effectively a court of honour for the rank and file. So the, the example I mentioned with Sean and Jason was dirty soldiers um, being scrubbed within a horse trough. So there's, right, there's, yeah. this, there's this guy who um, he hasn't been washing, he's been told to, he keeps not bothering. And so the men come together, rather than him go to a, a regimental court martial and be flogged for it, they go, we're not having this. They all get together say, yeah, he's guilty, he should be clean. And they collectively bundle him in a horse trough and they scrub him until he's red raw. And he doesn't do it again. And that, for them, that solves the issue and they can move on. It's not the there same are... principle as, um, like, I just, because I wrote, wrote a book on Eton, um, mm-hmm. the older boys being allowed to, back in the day, flog the younger boys and, and letting them dispense their own justice to an extent. Um, because if it was all, like like you say, there's, there's an exact uh, correlating one in there about a boy who didn't wash enough and he stank. So in the end, the older boys stuck him in a bath and scrubbed him clean and he never did it again. It's similar, isn't it? It is. And I, I think it's to do with the connections on a personal level, because these are comrades. Um, and for, for, for them, group camaraderie is everything. And there are expectations in the army. You know, you, you have to fulfill a certain job. And if you're not prepared to do basic things like scrub yourself clean, can we really trust you to stand in a battle and, and keep fighting? Because the whole point of battle tactics during this period is you stand on a line and you fire at the enemy and you charge as one. And if you can't trust the person standing to the right of you, because he, he doesn't even bother to watch. So does he bother to look after his musket? Does, is he, has he got more forward to stand in a fight? They have to have this way of dealing with um, the little things in order for the, the bigger things to fall in place. And so it must have been not quite the same thing at Eton, because obviously they're not having to yeah. war. But there's still that camaraderie there. You know, there are expectations and you, you need to toe the line. And if you're not, then there's going to be punishment for it. And we don't necessarily need to take you to the officer or the teacher and, and have you um, punished a really, in a really serious way for it. But we still expect you to not behave like this. Um, and, and there are other things that they, they punish. So, for example, there's, there's an account, and these, these accounts are sketchy, um, but there's an account of one guy who burns, he's um, chosen as the, the cook um, on a journey, on a transport out to... Uh, I think it's North America and he burnt their food. And so rather than um, just kind of put up with it, what they do is they, they form this company called Marshall. They decide he's guilty and they form two lines and he has to walk up and down the two lines in slow time whilst they're all smacking him over the head repeatedly with their forage caps. Again, you know, that thing of, well, don't do it again. Some of them are a bit more sinister though. There's a really interesting, um, I'm not entirely sure if this is true of, a biter, somebody who in fights is just turning around and biting his opponent. Um, and they decide that that's not appropriate behaviour. And he's sentenced to having his teeth, his front teeth knocked out. And the reason that I don't entirely believe this account is because, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, the reason I don't entirely believe this account is that apparently it was meant to be done by the, by uh, one of the men and then he bottled it. And so rather than him do it, they called on the battalion surgeon. The battalion surgeon turned around and said, actually, if you want to do this properly, it'd be much better to take all of his teeth out of the bottom jaw rather than his four front teeth. But if they'd done that, 
he then wouldn't have been able to bite open the powder cartridges to, to load his weapon. So I'm not entirely sure that that one's true. But what's interesting is just the fact that there is talk about these kinds of punishments. Um, and what's really intriguing is when you start to look at how the regiments use that illegal tier of court. Because every six months, the regiment was inspected by a general who had to run for court. And from 1812, those reports had to include a list of all of the regimental courts and marshals that had taken place. And the issue for regiments was that if there were too many, then the general would comment on this and it would reflect badly on the regiment. And he would say things like other methods, in inverted commas, need to be used because the court marshals are too frequent. And so when you look at the standing orders that are published by certain regiments, it's worth bearing in mind, these are public documents, right? They are published. Anybody can get their hands on them. They explicitly say that company courts marshals, which aren't legal, should be used instead of regimental courts marshals where possible in order to try and keep the number of trials down because it benefits the regiment. It improves their reputation because it looks like they need fewer trials to keep order within their units because the company court marshals don't have records kept for them, whereas the regimental courts marshals do. It also then boosts that honourable reputation because everybody gets a kind of sense that actually you want to be in this particular regiment because their discipline is really on point. And so there's a really interesting complex game going on where officers are sort of deliberately doing things that are illegal in order to make the legal system work that bit better. Can I ask you about a crime that's particularly yuck, but Mm -hmm. it must have happened? Rape. There must have been. If there's all this uh, sacking, looting, plundering, people's blood is up and that, were there cases of rape? Uh, What have you found about sex crimes in the army at this time? Yeah, I mean, it's really depressing to say this, but the, the attitudes are typically sort of 19th century, to be honest with you. The army hardly ever prosecuted rape of the nine and a half thousand ish that i've looked at i've come across Mm. two rape trials and those punishments are really really small sort of 500 lashes when you consider that desertion and theft could often get at least a thousand it really speaks volumes about how the army thought about this that doesn't necessarily mean that it's well pretty obviously it doesn't mean it's not happening um that's not to say it was happening every single day but there's no doubt in my mind that there were massive issues with with sexual assault um, even some of the officers' accounts are really blatant about how they're objectifying women, how there's this assumption that there's sexual interest. And it, it, it just must have happened. Um, what's also quite telling is that there are only two cases of child abuse, which also must have been happening on a huge scale. It must have happened. But it's... Yeah, it's I mean, you've got camp followers, haven't you, and things. There are exactly. lots of children around. Exactly. Um, and, and this sense of of not taking rape trials seriously is, is actually a reflection of society. It's not unique to the army um, because rape cases weren't mm. taken seriously in civilian courts. Even when it came to child abuse, you've got these assumptions about women being naturally promiscuous and all of these really vile questions about, you know, how can she prove that she wasn't interested and why wasn't she oh. able to get away? And you even see this. Uh, Leander Talar was talking um, to us about sort of the historic principles behind this um, on our Anne Boleyn podcast and about mm-hmm. how it was just generally assumed and not at all yuck to consider that women were just sort of these randy, uncontrolled um, sex maniacs who couldn't help themselves. Absolutely. And men would use that 
in their defence. You even see this with child abuse cases in civilian courts. Um, I, this doesn't apply to the military, but there is these horrendous cases where one particularly springs to mind where um, this something like 11, 12-year-old child has been sexually assaulted by this bloke and she's got venereal disease because he's got venereal disease. And so a doctor has examined her um, and says, look, I can see that they've got the same infection, um, but he's able to get off of the charge because he comes up with this insane suggestion that she was inherently promiscuous and that she somehow seduced him. Um, So it it was a, a massive issue in terms of how people thought about sex crime when to, to women. And what's really telling is that you actually see more trials for homosexuality. I've got 13 of those within my sample. And the language, perhaps as you might expect for that period, is massively value-laden. So they talk about it being an unnatural crime or a beastly crime. But that's it's only okay when they... to rape a kid. Exactly. Um, wow. But... That value-laden language is only ever applied to the rank and file. We know of instances of officers having been caught in homosexual relationships, sometimes quite uncompromising positions. You know, you've got officers using their position of power to abuse um, younger members of their units, uh, particularly within the rank and file. Uh, and part of the issue with, with all of this is issues of stigma. So you've got the, the, the attitudes towards homosexual, homosexuality during this period. You've also got issues of stigma associated with rape and obviously the trauma for rape victims. But there's also, out in Spain and Portugal, when we talk about the army, an issue of a language barrier and the fact that the army keeps moving. And so it becomes incredibly difficult for these women to report these crimes because, A, they know that they won't be taken seriously, Secondly, the army's potentially moved on because it happens one night, the army moves on. By the time the victims have the chance to come to terms with what's happened, the army's up sticks and, and left. But also when you try and communicate with these people, that you can't communicate in their language. So, I mean, it's not, I'm not surprised that there aren't many um, cases of this that get prosecuted. But it's definitely a darker side of the Peninsula War story and the, the history of the British army during this period more generally that we've we've all overlooked. Mm. Um, you mentioned homosexuality. Uh, what crimes do they prioritise then? What are the ones that they consider absolutely disgusting and unacceptable? Mainly desertion. Mm. Um, about 60% of general regimental courts martial were for desertion. About half of all the trials I've looked at are either for desertion or absence or absence without leave. And what you see quite often is massive overlap. So people will be tried for desertion well, actually, uh, sort of tried for absence for a period of years. There's, there's one guy I've got who's tried at regimental courts martial, and he, he's been away from the regiment for 12 years. He's quite obviously deserted, but he's tried for being absent because it comes back to this thing about discretion, whether they really want to publicise the fact that they've got deserters within their unit. What's really weird about desertions mm. in the Peninsula War is that, at worst, they affect about 0.05% of the troops that are out there. So there's this massive imbalance between how big an issue it actually is and what really gets punished. They punish theft a bit as well. Um, that's about 10 to 15% of cases, but that's minuscule in comparison to what must have actually been happening. 
because the memoirs are packed with these anecdotes of people plundering, whether it's wine, food, or whether in the process of going in search for wine and food, they've come across a couple of coins and they're not going to leave it there for somebody else to find. They're just going to pocket it. For the officers, oh. you've got dueling being one of the most common crimes, which is quite a difficult one. Um, going, I mentioned Eamon O'Keefe earlier. He's done a lot of work on this. And what he's found is that you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Dueling is illegal, so you can't accept a challenge to duel and you can't kill a man in a duel because if you do, you'll be tried for murder or potentially tried for murder. But the failure to accept a challenge to a duel was seen as dishonourable and you were seen as lacking in your moral character. And so that could lead to trumped up charges about conduct and you effectively being bullied out of the regiment. But what they're never tried for, officers, is theft and virtually never tried for murder. And in fact, there's one trial of an officer committing murder and he's found guilty of manslaughter and receives a fine. So it, it just says so much about the difference between what officers, what gentlemen are considered to be capable of committing when it comes to crime and what the rank and file uh, are thought to to be doing. Zach, this has been amazing. Um, you have your own podcast. Tell people where to go if they want to hear more from you. Yeah, I mean, it, we should say it's nowhere near as good as this one, okay? <laughs> history, hack is, history hack is fantastic. Um, yeah, my podcast is called The Napoleonicist. Um, it's available on Spotify, Google Podcasts. You can also get it via my website, www.thenapoleonicwars.net. But I'm leading a, a project to see the remains of six soldiers who were killed during this conflict, during the Peninsula War, um, which are currently gathering dust in a museum storage unit, analysed and then given a, a proper burial with military numbers because it looks like they were just left where they fell. They were discovered a few years back and, and they've just been kind of left there because the, the museum holding them doesn't have the money to pay for their burial. And we're going to need to crowdfund it. It's going to cost a huge amount of money, something like £20,000. We're not taking donations yet, and I know budgets are really tight at the moment, particularly with what's happening um, with people losing their jobs due to the COVID crisis. But if people are possibly interested in donating it in the future, or if they just want to learn a bit more, they can DM me on Twitter at History, or if they go to that website that I mentioned, the Napoleon click on the Bones of Burgos tab at the top. Um, they, they can join a, a mailing list and stay up to date. So if, if you might be interested in donating, fantastic. We're not taking money right now, though, because until everything's cited on the dotted line, we're going to be taking people's money for transparency. But more importantly, if you just want to know more and be involved in the discovery, because it's so rare to find six skeletons of, of men killed in this conflict. If you just want to hear a bit more about it, then please do join the mailing list and and uh, we'll, we'll keep you posted on our progress. Brilliant. Um, are you going to do a book when you're done with your PhD? Uh, that's the hope. Um, that, that's a long way off, though, because I'm not quite done yet. Uh, I probably won't have this done until about Christmas. So the book will be, oh, I don't know, 2022, maybe, 2023. So it's it's a long way off, I'm afraid. Looking forward to it, though. Um, Zach, thanks so much for coming on. Um, you definitely deserved your own spot after well, listening me. to all the previous Napoleonic wittering Um and just trying to be the sensible one in mayhem, basically. It was great fun. I mean, I basically <laughs> got a front row seat to an interview with Sean Bean. What more can you honestly ask for? So, so thanks. You so could much just retire me. now. Pretty You're much. Done. I mean, I've reached the pinnacle, haven't I? It's, it, there's nothing that's <laughs> going to top that. <laughs> he was great fun, Zach. Thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for having me. 
Join us on Monday when Will Idell will be with us to talk about his book, Kamikaze Hunters. This was incredible. This is the Royal Navy and the last few months of the war in the Pacific. So while everybody else was celebrating VE Day, there are some people still hard at work. And we don't usually think of the Brits as being involved over there. But my God, were they? And he told us all about it. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.